Hey, I'm Caleb Howard, and welcome to Tales from Sacred Texts. This podcast is a sarcastic and informal narrative of myths surrounding various belief systems and ridiculous stories from sacred texts that will explore little-known facts and stories related to religion. Before we go further, I want to do a little bit of clarification. People have been asking me how much of what I say is in the text, and how much is my own interpretation. To answer that, almost all of it is from the text. The only thing that is my own interpretation is really the cheeky pop culture references I throw in, and the opinions which I explicitly state are my own. To clarify, however, I don't go word for word from the text. So, I might say that Moses and Aaron walked into the Pharaoh's chambers, and people might criticize me and say, the Bible doesn't say that. But it's all for storytelling purposes, and it's extremely likely that that's what happened. Like, what do you think they did? They flew in on brooms? The second is, are these stories real? They are parts of ancient texts. These were not created by me or anyone alive now. They have existed for thousands of years. However, the authenticity of some of them is dubious. If you're a Protestant, the Bible stories that I'm telling you are probably accepted by your religion. If you're a Catholic, the story of Tobit is accepted as are the Bible stories. No religion that I know of takes the acts of Peter seriously. The purpose of the podcast is to tell the stories, and I'm starting to analyze them just a little bit. You may also have heard all this stuff about the Bible and how some committee of men decided to, what was going to be Holy Scripture and what wasn't. This is usually voiced by people who think that this committee picked and chose text to create a Bible that lined up with their own personal beliefs. Well, what would you do if you came across something like the Acts of Peter? Hopefully, if nothing else, these stories give you a glimpse into the range of religious writings, particularly Christian ones, and point out why certain texts made it into the canon and why others didn't. Last thing, some have wondered why I'm starting to add more opinions at the end of the stories. Well, one of the main reasons is I think these texts bring up a lot of harmful beliefs traditionally attributed to the Christian faith. Explaining these texts allows me to explain that Christians don't actually believe some of the more repulsive stuff, and show proof that overall, the Bible and more reliable texts disagree with these opinions. In the next few weeks, we're going to be getting into a lot more opinion as some of the stories turn darker and just a little bit more weird. So there's going to be a lot more opinions in those, so just that's a head up, heads up for the next couple weeks. But that's not today. Today, we're going to finish up the story of Patrick by going over a few more ridiculous legends, and then we'll do some Christmas gift suggestions for that special person in your life, and go down a rabbit hole of holy relics and indulgences, which are very good Christmas gifts if you can lay your hands on them. We'll find out that like St. Peter, all saints have a bottomless reservoir of dark magic, and how telling dying legendary heroes that all their friends were evil will absolutely convince them to accept your point of view. Just one more thing. We mentioned Finn McCool in this story. He was a legendary ancient Irish hero, a hunter-warrior type. He was pagan rather than Christian, so druids, which we talked about last episode, magic, a salmon that when eaten gave you infinite knowledge, this kind of thing, this is the realm of what you were dealing with when going over his story. Now, Christians were not fans of Finn McCool because he was respected mostly by pagans, and the Christians wanted to be rid of him. And Well, that's about it for the introduction, so we're going to go ahead and get right into the story. start with a classic fairy tale trope. Guy wants immortality, 
falls in love with a woman, gets taken to a magic kingdom, starts missing his family after three to four days, and goes back only to find out that it's been three to four hundred years. The legendary Celtic warrior, one of Finn McCool's men, lay dying on the ground. He'd come back to find that his world, his life, was only remembered in legends. Turning back sorrowfully, he started off for the only home he had left. Tir Nat Nog, and I'm probably butchering that. Just then, he'd seen a young man who was trying to lift a stone, but not able to move it. Despite his magic wife warning him that whatever he did, he should not get off his horse, he behaved like everyone else in these fairy tales and did not listen to her warning. Now he lay on the ground, hundreds of years catching up to him in the blink of an eye, his body shriveling like the Nazi grail hunter in Indiana Jones. Oisin was angry. He hated Christians. These Christians had ruined Ireland. Back in his day, everyone had been strong, brave, and fearless. Now everyone was weak, fearful, and deathly afraid of sex. He scowled at the peeling bells and black-robed monks slowly walking in processions and chanting in a barbarous tongue. It was adding insult to injury then when Patrick walked over to him. Hey! Want to be a Christian? Patrick exclaimed. If Oisin could have drawn his sword, he would have. As it was, he was too feeble. Patrick gasped. Why not? Everyone wanted to be a Christian. Oisin dropped some accurate criticisms. Intolerance, mean-spiritedness, and small-mindedness. Also... Your god was mad that somebody stole an apple, Oisin queried. I could have sent him seven cartloads of apples, he said, in the style of a typical medieval fairy tale insult. Patrick ended up bringing Oisin back to his house, where Oisin continued to harass the Christians. Christians are poor, he claimed. Speaking of which, Patrick was not giving him enough food. Listen, Patrick knew how much food this guy needed, and he was not okay with him asking for more. Patrick wasn't going to waste the food on a dying man anyway. So, Oisin didn't die, though. He basically just sat in Patrick's house, continually insulting the Christians. The whole religion was mere formality. Monks, priests, waving crosses and chanting in Latin, constantly ringing gongs and disturbing the harmony of nature. The ringing bells polluted, and quote, the music of what happens. It was a meaningless, joyless round of ceremonies which is basically a very accurate description of what was going on back in the day, by the way. Just going back to that term, the music of what happens, I really love that a lot. To me, it signifies a life of living in the moment, not dwelling on the past or yearning for the future. It expresses enjoying the small things in life, like sitting back and listening to the birds chirp or watching a sunset. In particular, the music of what happens emphasizes a life without a constant round of entertainment. True happiness comes not from routine stimulation, but from enjoying the mundane of the day-to-day. The truth is that one day, all of us will face death, and there's no need to rush through our lives, always chasing after the future. Instead, living a life of peace and appreciation will be what helps us enjoy this life and prepares us for the life to come. Patrick nodded. He agreed. Christianity was a lot better a couple hundred years ago, but it was more compatible with strength, bravery, and free thought. 
Unfortunately, murdering non-Christians and teaching an eternally burning hell was what Christianity focused on these days. He couldn't help it. Wait, had he just agreed with Oisin? He needed to take that back. Oisin was a pagan. He could not agree with him on anything. So at the thought of eternally burning hell, Patrick looked over at Oisin. He had used to serve Finn McCool, right? Of course, Oisin should know that Finn and all of his fellow warriors were suffering in agony in eternally burning hell as they were speaking. So, you're saying your god will roast my friends in hell for billions upon billions of years just because they were not fortunate enough to hear about him before they died? No thanks. Patrick didn't see why telling a person his friends were in agony for eternity wasn't a good way to convert people. He knew that people would be doing it for almost two millennia in the future, and it seemed to work. Jonathan Edwards was really good at that whole thing. For the record, Jonathan Edwards was a hell-obsessed preacher from the 1700s who preached a very famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It was about how God loved torturing people, and it caused people to panic so badly that they passed out. People were falling down at these sermons that Jonathan Edwards would preach, and a lot of them became Christians because they were so scared of hell. Oyson asked Patrick to show him where hell was so he could fight it. He was a legendary hero, and heroes faced their fears bravely. Oyson continued to stay in St. Patrick's house. Here he proved he wasn't wholly innocent when he came across a litter of puppies. Trigger warning, there's some animal cruelty coming up. Making sure St. Patrick wasn't looking, he called a servant over. Then, Oisin took the puppies one by one and hurled them against an animal skin hanging on the wall. All but one of the puppies slid down the animal skin, but the final puppy held on with his teeth and claws. Kill all the puppies but that one, Oisin demanded. St. Patrick's servant decided that yes, this was a good idea, and immediately went to kill all the puppies. A couple years later, it was time for Oisin to die, and Patrick decided it was the right time to make a final push toward converting him. Listen to my Christian music, Patrick said. It's the best music in the world. There's some Toby Mac, some Hillsong, and a little bit of Chris Tomlin. Actually, Patrick was a lot meaner than that. You never heard music so good from the beginning of the world to this day. It is well you would serve an army on a hill. You that are old and silly and gray. Oisin responded that he had heard Led Zeppelin and the Beatles. Just kidding. But his music was still absolutely better. I mean, the music that he listened to was, in his own words, by dwarves, I hope they were like Gimli, and hounds with cries sweeter than harps and pipes. That's horrible. Patrick hated this. He could probably make a deal and get Finn McCool out of hell. Maybe. But he wasn't even going to try. This guy liked hunts. How barbaric. And Patrick and Oisin start an insult battle. Patrick keeps repeating that Finn McCool was in hell. Oisin kept laughing. Patrick was a weak man. He didn't understand what legendary heroes were like. They were actually strong and not cowards. Oisin said that the scraps from Finn McCool's table that were fed to the dogs would have been better than a full meal at Patrick's house. Patrick must have been a vegan. Patrick called Oisin a withered, witless old man 
and old man in your foolishness that I cannot put any bounds to when he asked if his dog could go to heaven with him. Oisin said, if I had a fellow war warrior with me, he would break your head. He kept reminiscing on his own life and how it was much better it was in Christianity and talking bad about the priests. And no, I do not blame him for talking bad about Middle Ages priests. Oisin kept talking about how kind and generous Finn was and asking why a man like that would be condemned to burn in hell for all eternity. Just wait until you read Dante's Inferno, Patrick said. He cast literally everyone into hell with impunity, even if they've never heard the name of Jesus. Here's where the story diverges. Pagan versions have Oisin, obviously, staying a pagan. Christian versions, or what I assume are Christian editions of the original pagan story, obviously have Oisin becoming a Christian. I personally like the version where Oisin stays a pagan. It emphasizes just how wrong the Christianity Patrick brought to Ireland has gone. Far from apostolic Christianity, it is heavy on hell and very light on generosity and love, something that Oisin naturally values and something that Jesus Christ valued as well. There's some various other Patrick legends. In one, he transfigures a king who likes to persecute Christians into a fox. In another, he gets into a magic battle with a druid. The druid puts poison into his liquor, and Patrick freezes the liquor instantly with his hand, pours the poison out, which remains liquid, and then immediately thaws the drink and starts drinking. The druid keeps cursing the land with bad weather, snow, fog, etc., but he can't remove it. Patrick can, which makes him very popular. Patrick then suggests that both he and the druid be put into a house that is set on fire, and whoever has the more powerful magic will come out alive. And this seems like a really good idea to the druid. Patrick, ever the coward, refuses to go into the house, and instead forces one of his students to be shut into the house with the druid. The student survives, with only his clothes burnt off, and the story takes care to mention that his clothes were only burnt because they had been touched by the druid. The king was super angry and absolutely wanted to kill Patrick. Of course, Patrick responded by praying, and God just started smiting random people. Patrick then told the king that God would kill him if he didn't become a Christian. So, of course, the king became a Christian. According to the story, this was a very cool and honorable thing for Patrick to do. There are plenty more legends available on St. Patrick, but I can't tell them all with the time that I have available. I could really do a whole podcast on St. Patrick, but I don't really want to. I've hit on the major legends, but I would be admiss ending the episode without telling the most famous story. But that will be right after this. Patrick was praying. And, as he expected, animals in the form of demons were showing up to cause him trouble. Of course they were. He dealt with the birds on Croak Patrick, but these were snakes. Snakes, especially in Christian mythology and folklore, represent evil. It was a snake that introduced evil to humanity. The caduceus, or symbol of healing used by the medical profession today that consists of a snake on a pole, originates from the biblical story of Moses. We'll get to that sometime later, but basically it's a symbol that the death of a snake, which signifies the death of evil, brings healing. Medusa, Greek mythology, had a head covered in snakes. In Ragnarok, Norse mythology, the world serpent kills Thor. Dragons are just glorified snakes. The Harry Potter books which are based on a surprising amount of folklore, just search Nicholas Flamel or the Basilisk, uses snakes as the chief symbol of evil. Speaking of basilisks, 
The Bible mentions their existence in the book of Isaiah, although most versions use adder, cockatrice, or some other word. The Greek and Latin versions of the Bible use the term basilisk in many places, even though it was translated differently in the English versions. Additionally, many Catholic saints and monks of all people discuss the basilisk in their writings, confirming its ability to kill with a glance, among other things, although I really don't know how anyone is supposed to figure that one out. The Swiss city of Basel has the basilisk in its coat of arms, and Leonardo da Vinci of all people wrote about it as well, although his writing was potentially a copy of earlier Roman writing about the basilisk. Up until recently, people from one of the northern regions of Spain near the Basque area believed that while the basilisk had all but died out in other parts of the world, it still lived in their region and carried these guys carried roosters around with them when traveling between towns as the crowing of the rooster and the urine of the weasel is fatal to it. I feel like if basilisks actually existed, they would be a dominant species. Think of what would happen if a basilisk was turned loose on New York City. Millions of people would die before anyone was able to kill it. Anyone who saw it would not be able to warn anyone else about it because they'd be dead. Then again, basilisks could not have survived anywhere in the country because there are roosters literally everywhere. Most people think the legend of the basilisk originated from the cobra or the spitting cobra, which is a little bit of trivia. Heinrich Agrippa, in his book Female Preeminence, or The Dignity and Excellency of That Sex Above the Male, which was a book about how women were great and how men sucked, basically. It was written in the 1500s, and he explains that all phoenixes are female and that all basilisks are male because men carry more destructive qualities and the basilisk is super destructive, so therefore it must be a male. He then goes on to explain how men are generally evil and their presence in the world has pretty much only caused harm. He was called a Jew and a heretic by the monks because only medieval Christianity was stupid enough to incorporate racism against their deity as a core belief. Incidentally, anti-Jewish racism was one of the main reasons why the Seventh-day Sabbath keeping fell out of vogue around the 3rd and 4th centuries AD. Anyway, I really went on a tangent there, but I'm trying to explain some more of the folklore and mythology references I make, and then when I make one reference and explain that, then I feel like I have to explain the reference behind that reference. Mythology is such a tangled web, and if you really want to know a lot more about it, I'd recommend the Myths and Legends podcast by Jason Weiser. Fantastic podcast. I am not paid to endorse this. I have just listened to it, and it really was what got me into a lot of this mythology type stuff. But basically, the point that I've made here is that snakes are evil. Snakes represent evil. And also, snakes were used by druids. They were respected by druids. And so the driving out of snakes by Patrick does have some more symbolism than just being the driving out of snakes. And here we go with the story again. So... Patrick had been fasting for 40 days on top of a hill, and every so often he looked up and saw the nefarious face of a snake. They were watching him. Patrick, being firmly on the side of the good, was not happy. These were probably demon snakes, like the blackbirds had been demon birds. Plus, snakes were just bad creatures. The snakes surrounded him, making odd hissing sounds. Let's get him, one of them hissed to another. Patrick looked up as more and more snakes converged on him. Their mouths were open and their large, beady eyes stared at him. 
One of the bravest snakes slithered toward his hand, mouth open. Patrick turned his face directly toward the snake and hissed back. The snake looked at him, angrily. It was not going to do what Patrick said. As it continued toward Patrick, Patrick raised his staff and pointed it at the snakes. The snake struggled to continue to reach Patrick, but it couldn't move. Patrick pointed the staff toward the edge of the water, and the snakes were helpless to resist. They moved closer and closer to the edge of the cliff, against their will, finally slithering off the side, falling, still immobile and paralyzed, into the chilly ocean, drowning. Well, we don't know exactly how he got rid of the snakes, but we do know that Patrick was furious that they were interrupting his prayers and drove them off the cliffs into the water. The snakes that wanted to stay were transfigured into eels, and those who did not want to were driven off the island entirely. All but one snake. This snake was a very clever one, and while it had a healthy respect for all Patrick's powers, it had managed to outwit him for months. Patrick was exasperated. Finally, Patrick took a big box and set it on top of Croch Patrick. The snake, of course, was watching, but he didn't want to seem too interested. Finally, however, his curiosity was piqued. What was Patrick planning to do with the box? Finally, the snake couldn't help it anymore. In a low, hissing voice, it spoke, asking Patrick what the box was for. Patrick looked at the snake and replied in the same voice, I can bring this box here if I want. It's none of your business. The snake was offended. Patrick was his rival, yes, but he had a healthy respect for him. It was so rude that Patrick was not going to tell him what the box was for. It's not a very good box, the snake said, heaved. Patrick laughed. That may be true, he told the snake, but it's still big enough to hold you. You're a tiny little snake. Wow, this was offensive. The snake was very offended that someone would insult his size. He was a big snake. You're a liar, the snake hissed. He couldn't even fit half his body into the box. Patrick looked toward the snake. He would bet a bottle of liquor that his box is big enough to hold the snake. The snake was insulted. He was obviously a huge snake. Listen, the snake told Patrick. I'll come out here and settle your bet right now, but I'm worried that you'll do some magic on me with your staff. Can you put it away? Honor bright, Patrick agreed, which is a British saying for on my honor. This was a sporting competition. He wouldn't use his staff on the snake. All right, he said, after stowing his staff well away from where he was standing. Let's see how big you are. The snake slithered over to the box and crawled into it. He kept sliding more and more of his body into the box, and soon the box was full. The snake's tail was still sticking out. The snake laughed, a sharp hissing laugh. There you go, Pat. Guess you owe me a bottle of liquor, the snake said. Suddenly, Patrick moved like a flash of lightning and slammed down the lid on the box. The snake didn't have time to get out of the box, so he whipped his tail into the box in order not to get it cut off. Within two seconds, Patrick turned the key in the lock and threw the box six to seven kilometers into the ocean. Not exactly sure how he was able to shut the snake into the box, seeing as the snake couldn't fit, but that's how the story goes, how it's been told. And this is just about such a good snow I'm not exactly sure how the snake fit in the box when the whole point was he couldn't. But that's how the story goes and how it's been historically told. So that's what I'm going to stick with. 
Patrick's throw was such a good one that the snake almost couldn't help but being mad, except for the fact that he was about to drown. It was a lousy way to go, too. Why had the snake fallen victim to one of the most common tropes in folklore? The stories in this episode stray away from the more historically grounded legends in the previous episode to stories that seem to be more mythology and fairy tale than legends. The first story, whether or not it was edited by a Christian, seems to be written by a pagan. The story accuses Christians of cowardice in polluting Irish culture and brings back an ancient Irish hero to support the Irish people in their resistance to Christianity. The story was likely originally told by pagans in the corners of Ireland after Christianity had been the dominant religion and was an effort to keep old traditions alive. As for the story of the snakes, the simple idea of Patrick driving the snakes out of Ireland was probably an attempt of some people to explain why there were no snakes in Ireland. The second story of the wise snake retains elements from traditional fairy tales, and was a localized Irish-language story that really has never been put down to a major book. And that's where you get your best folklore. Anyway, that's about it for St. Patrick. I could keep talking about him, but I'd like to get on to some other topics. Maybe if I find any more exceptional legends about him, I'll return to him in a later episode. Before we go, I've got some Christmas gift recommendations, and I'm just going to go ahead and get into these. So, you may be wondering, what should I get my mom, dad, sibling, or partner this Christmas? Luckily, I've got some gifts that will thrill even the most stubborn family member, so let's get going. All prices are going to be in US dollars. I apologize if you're listening from another country, but I can't do every single currency. You might want to keep a currency converter on standby so you can marvel at the literal steals you're going to get. For your parents, I recommend a Tobit shower curtain or a Tobit bath towel. For just $63 for the shower curtain and $35 for the basic Tobit bath towels, you'll have to shell out an additional 5 bucks if you want the diabolical face of Asmodeus on your towel. These gifts will remind your parents that you will do anything to make sure they're cared for, even if it's marrying someone possessed by a demon or rubbing decaying fish entrails over their face. Testaments are another good bet. If you don't want to spend much money on someone, you can pay eight. Dollars and thirty-nine cents for 140 testaments. M-I-N-T, get it? They are individually wrapped in packets and blazoned with classic, comforting Bible verses, and even some that are a little scarier. Be alert, be on watch. Your enemy, the devil, roams around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. You could call your neighbor to repentance and also give him these beautiful classy mints. They come in peppermint, spearmint, wintergreen, the best mint, and are dairy-free, fat-free, gluten-free, and basically free of everything besides sugar and the love of God. For the special lady in your life, I recommend Christian fingernail art or decals. There's a few different versions of these, most of which are hard to find. The site that used to deal in these went out of business, so you might want to snatch up some Christian nail art quickly before the rest of it is gone. She might have ridiculous-looking fingernails at the end, but she'll be able to show her allegiances, especially if the Antichrist comes to town trying to hand out the Mark of the Beast like it's Comcast advertisements. In which case, people will sigh and get the Mark of the Beast because there is literally no other option, despite it being completely horrible. Have a precious little one? Then you'll certainly want them playing with a ten-plague set of plush toys. Remember the ghastly story of what Moses did to the Egyptians? You could have your kid playing with those in no time. For only $29.99, you save 6%. You can get plushies illustrating each of the plagues, including the death of the firstborn, and I quote, sensitively portrayed so as not to frighten children. I hope so, but did they really need to turn that into a toy? Finally, if you're looking for a movie that the whole family can watch together, I recommend Bible Man. 
Bible Man is an evangelical superhero whose power is quoting scripture. He fights villains such as the Wacky Protester, who creates a pocket universe to trap Christians and turn them into atheists. Unfortunately, these guys beat the tales from sacred texts to satirizing Bible stories, but I'm sure we do it a whole lot better. But maybe you're not wanting to buy something ridiculous and instead you're looking for something maybe a little bit functional. If so, you can try an indulgence. Indulgences originated in the Middle Ages when you would pay the Catholic Church some money in order to escape the penalty for a certain sin. For example, if you robbed your neighbor, you would pay a certain amount of money so your sin could be forgiven and you wouldn't go to hell. Or purgatory, technically indulgences couldn't get you out of hell, but most sins did throw you into purgatory, so you could really get out of a lot. According to the New York Times, you can now get indulgences again. Of course, end quote, you cannot buy one. Church trying to take the moral high ground here, but the article goes on to say that charitable contributions can help you earn one. Now that's a racket if I ever saw one. It reminds me when I used to sell books from door to door and had to tell everyone I was leaving them on a donation basis, not selling them, so as to exploit a loophole in the law. And if anyone didn't meet the required donation, I was told to tell them that the donation didn't meet the price for the book. That's called selling. Anyway, if you or your family have recently done anything sinful, perhaps you should buy an indulgence for them. The final and most useful gift is the Holy Relic. These are expensive, so beware. I'm going to do an episode soon on famous holy relics like the Holy Grail, the Spear of Destiny, the Shroud of Turin, etc. But the main thing you should know for now is that they were supposed to have magical powers, and there's a hierarchy of power among holy relics. The most powerful are first-class relics. These are your major relics that everyone hears about. They include anything that was used by Jesus, so Holy Grail, Spear of Destiny, Pieces of the Cross, Holy Foreskin, yes, that does exist, It also includes body parts of saints. The more important the body part was to the saint, the more powerful of a relic it is. For example, the head of a theologian or the feet of a crusading saint are more powerful than other parts of their body that may be found. Second-class relics include anything that may have touched a saint, and objects of regular use are more powerful than objects that weren't used often. For example, the shoe of a crusading saint may be more powerful than his glove. Although I guess glove, sword... So... Glove might be pretty powerful, too. Third-class relics are any object that was touched to a first-class relic, and possibly third-class relics can also be created by being touched to a second-class relic as well, but the jury is still out on that one. Third-class relics are carried around to provide protection and divine guidance. If you can see the potential for defrauding money out of people through this method, you're not alone. Thousands of fake relics circulated throughout Europe in the Middle Ages, and there are at one time up to 18 different foreskins of Jesus Christ. The entire relic business became a legal form of fraud and forgery, and people certainly became rich off this. Small towns endeavored to attract business to their town by acquiring relics, by organizing relic thefts where bands of men would go to a neighboring town and steal the relics. The Catholic Church now prohibits the sale of first-in-class relics, although that hasn't stopped them from being sold. The Catholic Church does permit the sale of third-class relics, however, and bits of cloth that were allegedly touched to first-class relics can be sold for hundreds of dollars. If you can acquire a first-class relic, you are all set to defraud people for the rest of your life by giving them worthless pieces of cloth. Granted, people who don't have first-class relics just forge them, and the relic forging business has become a niche crime that people have created websites to stop it. 
It's a difficult crime to put an end to because the people who are suckered into buying pieces of cloth that supposedly have magical powers from being touched to a dead man's bones are the same kind of people that would likely be suckered into other forms of fraud. This is in sharp contrast to biblical Christianity, where the grace and favor of God are freely given through faith in Jesus Christ and not sold for exorbitant sums and carried around like magical talismans. As I said earlier, we're going to do a whole episode on famous relics later, but that's all for now. We'll be back the week after New Year's, and we'll be releasing episodes every other week from now on. I just don't have the time to make a new episode every week at the moment. Anyway, thank you all so much for listening. I'm so grateful that you've taken the time, many of you to listen to all my 10 previous episodes, and others to just some of them. If you haven't listened to all of them yet, I'd recommend in particular Peter, You Can't Lock Up the Darkness, in Daniel, Elementary, my dear Watson. I'm trying to improve my podcast quality, and I would appreciate any help and advice from you all. Thank you all for being loyal supporters, and I promise that the next episodes will be great. And speaking of the next episode, the next episode will be very, 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 very dark. Feel free to skip it if you'd like. It's a story about the inherent darkness of humanity from the Book of Judges, and it's a chilling depiction of what happens when everyone decides to do whatever they like. That will be coming out on January 9. Until then, happy holidays, send me some figgy pudding if you'd like, and listen to way too much Andy Williams. Have a wonderful Christmas, and see you next year. This podcast is created by Caleb Howard, scripting is done by Caleb Howard, and music is by myself and by Anchor Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening again.